Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, as we continue our study through the book of 2 Thessalonians. And our text this morning will be verses 6 to 10. First Thess- 2 Thessalonians, sorry, I'm used to being in 1 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning at verse 6. Listen to Paul as he is superintended by the Holy Spirit. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with afflictions those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when when the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. There ends the reading of God's word this morning. Join with me in prayer before we tackle this text this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you have given it to us so that we can know what, who you are and what you desire from us. We praise and thank you again for putting it in human language that we can read and understand. We thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit that is our interpreter. And so we thank you that we can know for sure what is true and right. And so this morning we pray that you would again speak to us through your word, that you might use it as you see fit in our lives, whether that's to build us up, to tear us down, to correct us. And I pray that you would give us ears to hear and that we would be obedient to what we hear here this morning, I pray in your name, amen. Well, we started through the book of 2 Thessalonians last week, and we said that Thessalonians itself could be really, uh, the word that we could use for 2 Thessalonians could be summed up in comfort. Paul is comforting a a church that is under suffering and is, is being persecuted and so Paul is now going to give them comfort because he wants to make sure that they understand what God's plan is for them through all of this persecution. And so Paul began chapter 1 and he really is is giving them that comfort about affliction and, and the persecution that they are facing. And so Paul wants to, wants to give them that encouragement or affirmation, and so he praises them for the things that, are, that they are. We saw last week that they were in Christ. They were in God. They were, they were actually believers. That they had the grace of God and peace upon their lives because the church is ultimately defined by those who believe. We also saw that they were growing spiritually. That they were a church that wasn't just satisfied to be where they are, but they were growing. They were growing in faith. They were growing in love for one another. And so those were the things that Paul had been praying for them. 
They were doing so well that the apostles were again holding them up as an example, speaking well of them to others because they persevered in faith and had faith in the midst of persecution. In other words, they didn't change. They didn't abandon the faith. They didn't soften what they understood to be true. And so they carried on. And then lastly, we saw this is the plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. And so Paul touched on this righteous judgment of God and he says, actually, there's, there's, uh, there's going to be some discipline and some correction of the Lord in your life so that you will ultimately will not see the kingdom outside of that discipline and, and the change that takes place through it. And God is the one who is going, it's not that the persecution makes them worthy, but it demonstrates that they already are worthy and that in suffering and persevering, they are indeed God's. Well, that might leave the Thessalonians at this point with this thought in the back of their mind, because I think we've all been there. When we're being done hard done by, we think, well, that's really not fair. That's really not fair because we're doing what's right, we're doing what's good, and we're getting into trouble for it. And that just doesn't seem right. And there could be a a, a thought in the Thessalonians' mind at this point where they think, righteous judgment, my foot. Like, what's ha- look, at, look how these people are persecuting us and getting away with it. We're doing, quote, what's right for God, and we're taking it in the teeth while they're, they're the ones who are getting away with murder. And so there could be a temptation in their minds to think, maybe God's judgment isn't right. Maybe, maybe what's happening here to us is just tragic. Maybe it's not the way it should be. Maybe God is not as just and right as we thought he was. Well, Paul now switches as he comes here after giving that, really the affirmation and thanksgiving for who they are. He now switches to exhort them and he really is now going to lay out for them and promise them that all things will one day be made right. In other words, you're suffering this persecution. Things are difficult for you. But I want you to know that actually everything will ultimately be made right. You may be persecuted now and things may be difficult now and things may not be fair now and things may not be the way you like them to be right now. But ultimately, God holds the scales of justice in his hands and he will make all things right. And no one is getting away with anything. You, and Paul says, I want you to see the big picture. I want you to see actually the end result that's coming here. And trust me, your out, the outcome for you is good. And, and the outcome for those who persecute you is not good. And so Paul, again, exhorts them and calls them to recognize that all things will be made right one day. And so in this passage, Paul gives five reasons why all things will be made right. He gives five reasons why that the Thessalonians can grab onto and say, because of this, I know all things will be made right. And he gives them hope 
and he exhorts them to understand the tr- these truths. And there are five truths that we can grasp as we suffer for Christ's sake and for the gospel's sake. And as we live in a world that becomes increasingly hostile, if we grab onto these ideas and we grab onto these reasons, we too can have the assurance that one day all things will be made right. So Paul gives us five reasons He says, first of all, God's righteousness in verse 6. It's only just for God to repay. God's relief, we see that in verse 7. He brings relief to them. The Lord's revelation, the Lord is coming, the end of verse 7. God's vengeance in verses 8 and 9 on those who disobey the gospel. And then ultimately, God's reward. This is what we will receive when all is said and done. So Paul gives these five reasons why all things will be made well. So Paul begins in verse 1, and he starts with the righteousness of God. In other words, God's righteousness will see to it that all things work out in the end. In other words, all things will work out as, as will be made right in the end. So he begins in verse 6 and he says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Now it starts in the New American Standard here with the word for. And actually the word for is actually not in the original language. It actually starts with the word for after, or if that, or if indeed. And so what's kind of held off from us is that this is a, what we call a first-class conditional clause, and he is saying it, it's as sure as if it's going to happen, and so some translations say since. But that loses what Paul is doing here, and we've talked about this before. He is saying... I want you to ask the question in your mind. This is why he he uses this kind of language. And he says, if after all, or if indeed, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And the idea is he wants you to ask the question in your mind, is it just for God to do that? Is it just for God to afflict those who afflict you? And he's expecting you after to answer to answer that question in the affirmative, yes, it is. And so he wants you to he wants you to stop and think, is it just for God to afflict those who afflict you? And Paul is saying, in your mind, you need to be saying, absolutely yes. Yes, it is. Now it's interesting. It says here that, I'm just trying to find my place in my Bible, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. In other words, it is only right for him to do that. It is only just for God. And so he's saying this, God's repaying affliction, he's putting sorrow and pain on them, 
is only right. It's a spiritual law bound in his perfect holy nature. It is only just for God to repay. It's, only, it's just for him to give back what they have been giving to you. There's no rational argument against this. There is no moral argument against that. The divine judgment is reasonable. Divine judgment makes sense. This is God's holy, righteous nature, and he must repay. It is righteous for God to do that, and it goes along with his character. This is literally God's viewpoint. He must repay those who afflict you with affliction. He cannot allow it to go. He cannot allow that sin to take place. He must pay it back. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Now maybe that's not the view that we have of God sometimes. Sometimes we think that, we, we tend to say, well, we need to be like Jesus, and, and, and Jesus is just sweet and kind. But who's quoting this? Jesus, right? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will what? Repay. God is not a God who loves and gives up his justice and his righteousness and his holiness. He must deal with it. And Paul says to the Thessalonians, listen, I want you to listen very carefully, Thessalonians. God will take care of those who afflict you. Because God is righteous. And because righteous, God is righteous, He must do something to those who afflict you. Those who, who cause you pain and are injustice to you and, and are against you, God must avenge it. He must repay it. It is God's character that demands that he do something about it. So as the Thessalonians are sitting under persecution and as they feel like they're being hard done by and they think this is out of control, Paul reminds them that guess what? God cannot not respond to what's taking place. The reason everything will be okay is because God himself is righteous and he must respond because if God does not, then God is going against his character and God will no longer be God. And it is, it is incumbent upon him to act because he must act according to his character. So Paul, Paul says, listen, Thessalonians, God must, must punish those who are afflicting you. They're not getting away with it. And you know why they're not getting away with it? Because God who is unchanging is righteous and holy and he must deal with sin. And that is the same thing with us. Right? When we are persecuted for righteousness sake, when we are persecuted for the gospel, we must recognize we don't need to do anything about it. 
We don't need to get the scales of justice and we don't need to be frustrated and we don't have to sit there and think, it's not fair, they're getting away with it. God will judge it because God is righteous and he must judge it. Therefore, one day he will what? Make it right. And that's the character of the God that we serve. Well, not only is God's righteousness make sure that everything will be okay, but God's relief will come to believers. He says in verse 7, and give relief to you who are afflicted, and to give relief to you who are afflicted. All right, so those, the, 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 that's speaking there of believers. He's speaking to them and he says there's going to come a time where God will bring relief to the believer. Now we're going to see ultimately that it's going to be in the future, but that doesn't mean that we don't have relief now, right? Because when he started this book, he said grace to you and what? Peace. In other words, there are benefits to being in Christ in this life. We don't have to wait to eternity for everything. We have the ability now to live, live in joy and the ability to have the peace of God rule in our heart and that the grace of God is changing us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ no matter what our circumstances are. But he says there's going to be a time where he will give you relief. There's a time where he will take away all of the tension that is with you. The idea of the word relief has the idea of absence of tension, the absence of trial. It means to let up. It's the Greek word used when you bend a bow and you release the string it's relax and relax it. You know, when you take, the, when you take your bow and you take, you take the string off and now it's relaxed, that's the word that is used to relieve the pressure, relief from trials, relief from hardship, relief from sin. Some have translated this rest or even peace. When Jesus comes for his people, it will be relief. Death will be done with. Sin will be over with in terms of life. Sorrow will be gone. All will be joy and blessedness. There will be no problems, no pains, no suffering, no disease, no, tight, no pressure, no tension, no squeezing. Nobody will be persecuting you. And he says, all things will be okay because God, the God who cannot not afflict those who afflict you is the same one who will promise to give you relief to you who are afflicted. He will, he will come and he will make things right for you. As Paul said in Romans 8, if we are children, children of God, then we are heirs of God. We are heirs and heirs of God. And if we are heirs of God, then we also must be fellow heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him in order that we might be also glorified with him. And then verse 18, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Any suffering that we have here isn't even worthy compared to the compensating glory that awaits us in the future. 
And so Paul says, he will give relief to you. He's speaking to the Thessalonians who are afflicted. God will take all of the pressure, all of the tension, all of the hardship of life will be gone. And then he says, furthermore, to us as well. Not only to the Thessalonians who are afflicted, but to us as well. And he's talking about himself, Paul. He's talking about Silvanus and Silas or or as he's known, and he's talking about Timothy. And maybe by extension, he's speaking to what? All of us. That all of us will find relief. All of us who are in Christ, all of us who have suffered for his sake, all of us will, will ultimately find that relief. Now, it's interesting when you think about it, Those who get relief are those who what? Suffered. Those who get relief are those who've been afflicted. Those who took their stand for the Lord Jesus Christ, those who were willing to stand on the truth and stand for the Lord Jesus Christ are the ones who are afflicted, which means this. Just because you believe the facts of the gospel doesn't make you saved. Just because you understand what the gospel is and you, under, and you can quote the gospel back doesn't make you saved. It may make you knowledgeable of the facts of the gospel, but that doesn't mean that you're saved. Because if you are unwilling to count the cost and to take the cost of being a believer, then knowing the gospel doesn't save you. It only informs you. It doesn't transform you. It's those who are willing to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ who are ultimately what? His. They're the ones who find relief. So Paul says, God's rest will come what to believers? There will come a time that will all the trials of life and all of the tragedies of, that sin causes will be taken away. And he said, that is for you, for you believers who, are will, who have been afflicted, God will grant that to you. Well, thirdly, he says, not only is it God's righteousness and God's rest, but we see God's revelation. So when is this relief coming? When's it going to come? When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. He says, this relief's coming, But the fullness of this relief, even though you have some now in in the grace and the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ, will come at his coming when Christ comes again. And he describes this now. He says Jesus Christ will be revealed. Right? He, He was revealed the first time when he came as a child. Second time he will come and he will be revealed. And it says he will be revealed from heaven Three prepositional phrases from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. 
First of all, the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven. He will come down from heaven. If we remember in Acts chapter 1, records Christ's ascension at the end of his earthly ministry. And when he left, he says, he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. They were standing on the Mount of Olives with the Lord and his disciples and he was lifted into heaven. And then two angels appear in verse 11 and said to him, Jesus, the same one who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. And he says, there's coming a time when Christ will come and he will come back physically. He will become back visibly. Right now he is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. But he will come back vis- visibly and phys- physically in a cloud. He will be seen by all. Remember the, fir- the, the Thessalonians in chapter 1 of First Thessalonians, Paul told them, I know you are waiting for his son, what? From heaven. And Paul says, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be revealed from heaven. He will be seen. He said in John 14, if I go to prepare a place, I will come for you again. And where I am, you may be. Secondly, not only is he, is he coming from heaven, but he's coming with his mighty angels. Could be translated, he's coming with his, with his mighty, in his power, and angels. But the idea here is that Jesus Christ will be coming and he will be accompanied by angels. Now, again, it's not that he's going to come with one or two angels. It appears that he's going to come with many. It's not un, 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 unheard of that God appears with angels in the Old Testament. But here again, when Christ comes, it says in Matthew 25, when the Son of Man is coming in his glory and all his angels with him. He's coming with his angels. Now it's possible that it means all angels, and I think that's probably what it means. Some would argue that it means all the angels that are with him. But I would understand he's coming with all of his angels. He's returning to earth with, with them as they will be his helpers and those who will ultimately work with him. And so it says he will come. He will come with his angels visibly to earth. And thirdly, it says he will come not only from heaven with his mighty angels, but in flaming fire. As we, know, as we know that sometimes fire is judgment, but here it's referring to Christ not coming in fire, but it really speaking of his presence or the fire of his glory. Here Paul describes the glorious Shekinah blazing light of emanating presence, his holy fire. This is the kind of fire that you see in the Holy Spirit's arrival at Pentecost in cloven tongues of fire as it settled down on the individual, that fire which represents the presence of God, not necessarily the judgment of God. It's the same fire that Moses saw in Exodus chapter 3, verse 2, when the, when the burning bush was on the ground, an appearance, pre-incarnate, 
perhaps a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ in that bush as it, as it burned and it did not burn up. It's a fire that does not consume, but is the emanating glory of his presence. It's that same cloud that led, is that a fire, pillar of fire that led Israel in the desert. And Paul is saying the Lord Jesus Christ is coming. He's coming in power. He's coming with his angels. He's coming from heaven. And he's coming in fire. All of these point to the fact that Jesus Christ is God. He is, he is God himself. He is deity. And he's coming from heaven where he has been seated on the very throne of God and he's coming with his angels and he's coming to earth. And he says to the Thessalonians, Christ is coming back. The reason we know that things are going to be okay is not only is God a judging God, not only is God a righteous God and a God who relieves us, but he is also coming and he will display himself to the world. We have that hope. We have the reality that Christ is coming back. He will be visible. He will come in power. And he will be able to right all wrongs. This is not wishful thinking. This isn't dreaming. This is pre-written history that the Lord will return. He will be seen visibly and in power. And he says, don't think that, the, that those who persecute you are getting away with it because the Lord Jesus Christ himself is coming back personally to take care of it. And you have that hope. Well, we've seen God's righteousness, God's rest, God's revelation. Now we see God's avenging, God's recompense. In verse 8. How do we know everything will be made right? Because God will avenge those who do not know him. It says, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, he is is basically, there's vengeance here. He He is going to punish. That's exactly what Jesus does when he comes. Verse 6, he said he was going to repay. Verse 8, dealing out retribution. Verse 9, they will pay the penalty. Christ will come back with vengeance. Who will that vengeance be on? Well, first of all, those who do not know him are non-Christians. He will come back and he will put his vengeance upon him. He says he will put his vengeance upon those who what? Do not know God. This isn't, this does not mean they don't know about God or, or are not even, are not aware of him, but rather that they have no personal relationship with him. There are those who might think that they know God. They might even serve God as it were but they simply have no saving relationship with him. Jesus said in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life that they may know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. 
And God will pour out his wrath, not on those who are his, but upon those who do not know him. That is the key. People who do not know God will feel his retribution. It's easy to be fooled. There are those who think they are serving God, but God says, depart from me, I never knew you. There are those who have said, we did things in your name. He did not know them. And so he says, there are those who do not know God, whether they think that they have, they serve God, whether they do things in the name of God, but God does not know them. And then he says, and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a second definition of these people who feel the retribution. Not only the ones who persecuted Christians, but they belong to a larger group of people who do not know God. These ones do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. This is where guilt is intensified. It's one thing to have knowledge about God from creation. It's one thing to have some understanding that there is a God, but there's another culpability that comes with the knowledge of the gospel and the revelation that is given to us in the New Testament. And a rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ brings even greater de- guilt. It brings a hotter, a hotter hell, a severer punishment reserved for those who reject the gospel. It doesn't matter. Those who died in the Old Testament without, without the full revelation of the gospel, even though they had enough to save, will not be as culpable for those who have, no, who have the full revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ in his death on the cross. They will be culpable for what they knew, but they will not be culpable as those who have heard the gospel. And I have said this many times. You do not want to go to hell from Bowman Bow Baptist Church. You do not want to go to hell from Bowman Bow Baptist Church. You have heard the gospel. You have heard it multiple times. You have heard the truth of God's word. And you are responsible for everything that you have heard. If you don't know him today, I plead, come to him. You are culpable and you are under the wrath of God. You're responsible for the truth that you, you have heard. Don't sit here week after week and reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Call on him, plead with him to have mercy upon you. Hebrews 10 says that if you are going on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. If you reject the truth in Christ, that sacrifice, there's nothing else for you but certain terrifying expectation of judgment. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. 
it is terrifying to fall into the hands of an angry God. I just wanted to point out that word obey, obey the gospel, obey the gospel. It says you need to obey the gospel. And here's a concept that I want us to understand. The gospel is a command. It is to be obeyed. We often present the gospel and we say, come to Jesus. It'd be wonderful if you've come. He'll forgive your sins. He'll solve your problems. He'll bring you peace and joy and blessings. And we encourage people That's a wonderful thing to do, and they really should do. But what the Bible says is, I command, it's a command to be obeyed. That's why Paul talks about obedience of of faith in the book of Romans. So remember this, the gospel is what? A command. When it is preached, it is a command to be obeyed. Remember John the Baptist when he came? Did he say, hey, repentance would be good for you? Hey, why don't you give it a try? Did he? Repent. Repent. A command, repent, nothing else. The gospel is to be obeyed. This marching orders for mankind. So Paul says, those who reject, they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction and from the glory of his power. He says there's going to be the penalty there's a payment to be paid and it will be eternal destruction. Again, this is not talking about annihilation. He's not saying that you cease to exist. But rather the idea is loss of everything worthwhile in life. It's a, it's a never, it refers to separation from God. Just as endless life belongs to the Christian with God, endless destruction belongs to those who are opposed to Christ. And he says, this, this, is, this is the penalty, and this is why it's so terrible. He says, away from the what? The presence of the Lord. The believer will spend all eternity in the fellowshipping presence of the Lord. But the unbeliever will be completely separated from the fellowshipping presence of God. He will have God's presence in hell as God pours out his wrath on him for all eternity. but he will never receive the good things from God. All good, perfect things come from God, James says. All good things come from him. There won't be any of those things. Nothing good, nothing meaningful, nothing beautiful, nothing valuable, no joy, no peace, no love, no comfort, 
None of those things will be available to those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 23, Depart from me. I don't know you. I'll go out of my presence. That's what hell is. It's away from the presence of the Lord. There's no beauty. There's no joy. There's no comfort. So not only are they away from the presence of the Lord, but they are away from the glory of his power. They're away from the glory of his power. What does that mean? It means his visible splendor, his majesty, his display of his majestic power. They'll never see that. They'll never see the glory of God. There will be nothing in the presence of God there. There will be nothing of the power of God where they are. Nothing in the presence of his comfort. Nothing of his beauty. Nothing to give them joy, peace, and happiness. All of those things, all the splendor, the majesty of God will be lost to them. You will be in the company of the devil and his angels. And yet, in eternal loneliness. People say, well, I don't mind going to hell. I want to be with my friends. Guess what? You won't be with your friends. You'll be in eternal loneliness, separated from everyone. So Paul says, listen, all things are going to work out for you, Thessalonians. All things will be made right because God will be the avenger and he will, he will be the one who will pour out his eternal wrath on them. They will pay that penalty. He's the one who will choose who will be punished and he's the one who will make them pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Lastly, Paul says this, God's reward. In verse 10, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who believed, for our testimony to you was believed. When he comes, whenever he, that, that is when Christ is revealed, Whenever he comes, he will be glorified in his saints. Do you hear that? He will be glorified in his saints. Now notice this. He doesn't say they will be glorified by his saints. He says he will be glorified in his saints. In other words, it's not us glorifying him as it were by our actions but we, he will be glorified in his saints. In other words, when we get to heaven, we will be like Christ. When we are on earth, whatever we do, we do for the glory of God. But ultimately, we will be like Christ when we get to heaven. And when we get to heaven, we will glorify him like we were never able to do on this earth. We will be so transformed and so changed that when we get to heaven, he will be glorified in us. He will, we, God will look at us and we will be what? Displaying the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ who we were saved to be. 
In other words, we will be demonstrating the glory of God perfectly as we were created to do. His glory will then be what will go through us. It will be like light, like the sun of the light going through a diamond. Now his glory will flow through us and he will be glorified. We will be perfect persons, perfect in body, perfect in spirit. We will share the glory of God. We are his children, you're a child of God, and you will reflect that in heaven. Secondly, he says, not only will we be glorified as a saint, but you will be marveled at among all who have believed. You will be marveled at among all who are believed. And to be marveled at. And the idea is this. You're going to get to heaven and you're going to be glorified. And you're going to look over at someone else and you're going to say, look at Bill. Look at Bill. Look how, what God has done in Bill. Wow. Look at the glory of God displayed in Bill. And all of the saints are going to be going around heaven going like, wow, what happened to you? Look at the glory of God in you. Look at the change. And they will glorify God as they, as they look and wonder at the glory that God has transformed each one of us. The manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. The angels will look at the church and go like, wow, look at that. Look what God has done. And we will certainly be doing that to each other as we praise God for what he has done in each other. And he says, this is your reward. All things will work out well for you because you're going to be transformed into the image of God. You will be perfectly like Christ as you can be as a created being. You will be without sin, without, without flaw. And you will be walking around heaven going, wow, look at the grace of God. Isn't God great? Look what he's done to you. And God will be marveled. And we will marvel at one another. And then he ends this with, for our testimony to you was believed. And he says, this is the reason that I know things will work out well for you Thessalonians. Because when we came, we gave you the gospel. We gave you the true gospel, the hard gospel, a gospel that came to you among amongst months, much affliction. And he says, our testimony is true. What we told you was true. And the fact that you believed and we testified to your belief, it's true. In other words, because you believed, this is all for you. It's all for you. You believe the gospel? Guess what? 
this is all yours. Recognize that God is the one who keeps the scales of justice in his hand for all who believe. And the only way to find relief and to recognize that all things will work together for good for them that love God, for those who are called according to his purpose, is what? Is belief in salvation. We often look at Romans chapter 8 and we, we repeat that verse often. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God to those who call according to his purpose. How do we know that? How do we know that? Well, Paul just told us and, and he's going to tell the Romans here again. How do we know all things work together for, good that, for God that loves <laughs> according to his How do we know that God causes all things to work together for those who love God for, to those who are called according to his purpose? How do we know? Well, he tells you, for, here's the explanation, for those whom he foreknew, those he knew in eternity past, intimately know the persons that he know, he knew, he also predestined to be, come, conform to the image of his son. In other words, there was a destiny here, so that he would be the first among, firstborn among brethren. I need to get my tongue back. The image of his son, though he would be the firstborn among many brethren, and these whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he what? Also glorified. And Paul is saying here, listen, because you were among the called, it guarantees that everything will ultimately turn out for your good. And so Paul has taken a few extra verses here in Thessalonians to tell us the same thing. Everything will turn out all right for those who believe in him, and everything will turn out horribly wrong for those who reject him. And so Paul's purpose here is to tell us, listen, believer, regardless of the circumstances of life, regardless of of the persecution that you suffer for righteousness' sake, God will ultimately make all things right. He holds the scales of justice. And ultimately, things will turn out most excellent for the believer because we will be glorified with the Lord Jesus Christ for eternity. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for these truths that are laid out in your word and the encouragement that they are. That you are a God who is righteous. You are a God who is in control. You are a God who is coming back. You are a God who will ultimately avenge all sin and all wrong and will ultimately reward yours. And so we praise and thank you for being a holy and righteous God. I pray that we would live in hope, in obedience, because we know that you will work all things out for our good and for your glory, I pray in your name. Amen.